Shout it out. Start with us. Start with us, Lord. Amen. Give him a hand clap of praise. Thank you. Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the house of God. How many believe God is going to start in you today to do something amazing that will change the world and never be the same again? We believe in this church that revival is something that we can aspire for, that revival is not just something you just wait for, but revival is something you sow seed into like a farmer to receive a crop. How many believe that there are Christian farmers out there? How many believe they still have to sow seed? They can't just go to the ground and go, hey, I believe you're going to produce some corn today. How many know, even as a Christian farmer, they have to go out there, put in work, drop some seed, do the work of an agriculturalist, you know, make sure that the water is coming in, the sun is appropriate, keeping away the weeds. Somebody say, put in the work. This is the belief of Pentecostals. We as Pentecostals believe that revival is a gift that is received from those or by those doing the work of revival. That's why I have been believing for revival while I've been doing the work of revival. In other words, we as Pentecostals have not looked at revival as something that is sovereignly just God deciding to do whatever he just wants to do. Oh, well, when the good Lord wants to bring revival, he'll do it. No, that is not in our history as Christians. We believe we have to go to the upper room. Somebody say, go to the upper room and wait for the Holy Spirit. Somebody say, tarry on the Lord. Amen. And then when he comes, we have to be able to leave the upper room. Everybody say, leave the upper room. And then speak the word in tongues and interpretation and to go out there and prophesy. And I know we as a church, we oftentimes wish that God would meet us in ways that are greater than the way we see him. We know that there were greater signs and wonders in the Bible than oftentimes we see in our church services or when we go out and preach. But let that not be a discouragement to you to just throw up your hands and say, well, you know, we didn't see the dead raised today. We might as well stop praying for it. We didn't see 3,000 get saved, so we might as well stop preaching to the crowds. No, let it be something to uh, put a hunger in you to say, God, I'm going to hold on until you come and do this. And that's where we can go even outside of the Bible, not an inspiration the same way. Outside of the Bible, it is there for our encouragement, not inspiration like how the Bible is, but it's encouraging to us to see how did they tarry and be obedient until revival came. You can learn about the first great awakening in America, just looking at America revive in America. American revivals, Second Great Awakening. You can look at the revivals of Azusa Street that came out of that, the Pentecostal revival. You can go to other nations, study about the uh, Argentine revival, the Chinese revival, the Iranian revival, the Colombian revival. Somebody say, God is moving. You can be encouraged by how he's done it, and I'm just here to let you know that song really encompasses what we are about as a church, and I think what's going to tie into today's message, because we are contending for revival. We are believing that revival is a part of God's plan. It's a part of his work, and if you're looking for the word revival in the New Testament, it's not there. It's just New Testament Christianity having the supernatural workings of God following. So what we're saying is we are here as Christians 
Christians on the earth, and we're not satisfied with what we're seeing because it's not lining up with the Bible. So revive, bring back, restore what we once have. Does everybody get that term and how it's used? And so oftentimes with revival is also the term restoration, and we believe that those go hand in hand together, and where it starts is with us. So I'm not just believing today for a random amount of people on the streets to come back into the church just because they felt like it. No, I believe revival starts with the church. You get empowered with the gospel and you go meet those people out there and then you draw them into the church. Do you see how that works? So revival is not just opening up the doors now and say, come on in, we're praying for revival. No, revival is when you and I stop being apathetic that there's people in our lives that are going to hell. We stop being apathetic about it, and we start doing something about it, to talk to them, to share the gospel with them. We go out of our way into the public, because after we've told all of our friends about heaven and hell, are we just supposed to go, well, I'm done, Jesus, I've done my part? No, then we go out into the public and meet people and then encourage them to know Jesus. And in that process of going and showing and demonstrating the goodness of God, I believe revival happens. It changes us, and then it begins to change the appearance of the church. The church is no longer looked at as a place where just Christians come to gather to do Christian things, but it's a place where Christians gather with the world for them to be transformed to go back out into the world to do Christian things. Do you get the difference there? Because let's just say we were, uh, you know, Trekkies or into Star Wars or whatever. We could be doing Star Wars things here today, all getting dressed up. You know, you could be Obi-Wan Kenobi. I could dress up as Yoda or whatever, and we could all pretend like we're Star Wars people, and then when we walk out of here, we take off the mask and we go back to being normal. See, that's not church. Church isn't where we all just come and get to now pretend that God is existing, and we all get encouragement, and then we go back out to the real world where God really doesn't do a lot, and then we just got to play by their rules. No, what we want to do is get so Holy Ghosted, roasted, and toasted here that we go out and change the world. Amen? We want to be so heavenly minded that we change the earth for good. We want to bring heaven down to earth. So what we're working on here, what we're practicing here, what we're putting into motion here is actually applied out there. So that's why for me personally, I feel like when I'm out there preaching the word, I'm doing the real work of an evangelist, the real work of a pastor, teacher, etc., whatever gift God has given me, because there, they're not all sitting quietly listening to me with their pens and papers ready to take notes. They're combating what I'm saying. They're being demonized. I mean, I've met some people that are oppressed and demonized. They're being wild and crazy. But there, I get to see God transform lives. And if I was called into the secular world, trust me, I know you have to walk there with a certain amount of grace, a different calling. I get it. It's different. But if I was where you were at on your job, I would be looking for opportunities to where I can apply my Christian worldview into that place. Because how many know every job wants people to be honest? How many know they need a revival of honesty in the workplace, starting with the CEOs? See, so you should be a part of a change agent. You should be a change agent, a part of the cultural change of your job by just starting there with a Christian conduct of honesty and compassion. How many know every company wants people who are compassionate? And then we need to employ our prayers for that business, for that company, for things that are being done to harm others and to harm that business to be 
exposed, to get corruption to leave. Wouldn't that be amazing? To see corruption leave our businesses, Christian conduct to come in, and to be changed from the inside out. How many believe God can do it? There are stories in American history from stockbrokers to businessmen that have transformed the business world and the stock market and other uh, components of our economy. There actually was so many Christian business people that were wanting to impact their business that they started the Christian Businessmen's Association for Christian businessmen to get together during the day to pray to see how they can have dominion on the earth, have inventions and witty ideas, put them into the culture, and change the world for the good. How many believe we need to see that revived? We need to see Christian businesses and Christian businessmen revive, taking over not because of force, but because they're better. They're better. The Christian businesses are better taking over the industries of movies, entertainment, music. How many believe if every person who is singing today, who had come from the church, went back to singing for the church, uh, singing for the glory of God, all the best singers would be Christian. Come on, how many believe that would be something to witness? Katy Perry brought up in the church, uh, you know, all of Britney Spears, just the ones that are coming to my mind, Beyonce and these other ones brought up in the church. If they went back to worshiping for Jesus, the whole music industry would belong to God right now. I mean, it would not take much. And this is what I love to share with people is that what we see now started as a revolution or a revival for the devil. And if the devil was powerful enough to take back music when we used to have it, to take back the arts when we used to have it, when you study any of those things, arts, music, and all that, what do you always have to study about the church, don't you? Even the church is responsible for universities and science. How many of you have studied in college the history of something, where it was science, whether it was the arts, and you had to go back into the church time? And I know a lot of times people will say, oh, well, they were controlling, they had their own issues. Yeah, but at least they weren't dissecting each other and trying to do, do Mr. Potato Head on each other. At least they, you get what I'm saying? At, le at least they knew a man from a woman and a woman from a man, right? At least they weren't killing their own children. I'll be the first to admit there was some burning at the stake. I'll be the first to admit there were some inquisitions. But you get what I'm saying? If you, if you just put Americans aboard, if we're just doing scales, okay? And, and I'm not Roman Catholic and I protest a lot of that. So I'm here for a reason because they put us at the stake as well. Let's just be very honest. Uh, the Christians who believe what I believe just study William Tyndale. We were burned alive too. So, so sometimes people get really upset with me as if I affirm that. I'm like, my folks were getting burned too. A pastor was actually getting burned with the Puritans and the witch hunts because he didn't go along with them as well. Study your history. Somebody say, know your history. But I can have an equal scale of judgment approach to this and just go, okay, let's put out the scales. Let, let's put over here on this side, on the right side. Let's put the Christian church and, and the Catholic church and all of the atrocity that's been attributed to Christianity, okay, the taking over indigenous lands and all of these different things and the, the inquisitions and the mistreatment of the Jewish people during the Spanish Inquisition and all of that. Let's put that all together. And they have come up with numbers to what that is. That's 10, 20, 30 million people that might have been negatively impacted, killed because of the Roman Catholic church, Christianity, Christian. Are you guys tracking with me? So we put 50 million on this side. What do you think is going to be on this side over here where we remove God? Just in America alone, over 60 million abortion deaths just in the last 20, 30 years. 
not including the deaths that have come from the abortion mindset in China, double that, triple that, 150, 200 million, not including the regimes that came from Stalin and others. So if, if you were just wanting to weigh out some stuff, America has done wrong, more wrong in 30 years than the entire Roman Catholic Church did in all of its inquisitions and all of its displacements. Are you guys tracking with me? So even then, don't let the people tell you that two wrongs make a right. No. Christianity, when done right, there is nothing in comparison to it. And the world, especially in our culture, determined that they would push their worldview out of the closet and push us into the closet. And we need to come back out of the closet, amen? And we need to show them who we are as Christians, and we don't need to push them anywhere, but we just need to make our voices known again in all of those spheres. Are you guys ready for the message? Look at your neighbor and say, that was just the introduction. That was just based off the worship song. I'm just talking about the worship song right there. Let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. I'm glad that you're here in church today. Sometimes I get inspired just by the worship song that we're singing. So before I get into the message, I like to speak on that. But thankfully today, you get the, uh, the introduction tied into the message because it is the same subject. I'm going to read to you one of the most scariest passages of the Bible, and I want to apply it to today, and I want it to put in, in us an urgency to preach the gospel to our friends and family who don't know Jesus. I want to uh, title this message, No Pity. Everybody say, No Pity. You're going to know where that's coming from. But I want to give you a little bit of history here. You're at the end of a chronicle, or chronicles plural, of the people of Israel. And this book is similar to 2 Kings. So there's First and 2 Kings, First and 2 Chronicles. At the end of this book, 2 Chronicles, you are seeing the chronicle, the retelling of how the people of Jerusalem went into captivity via the Babylonian army and King Nebuchadnezzar. This is that historical point that I have reminded you of before when we've talked about Daniel in the lion's den and his friend Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I always like to place in there when we talk about them the reason for why he's getting thrown in a lion's den. How many heard me mention that before? Why these Jewish boys are getting thrown into a fire? Because the context matters. The context is they were ripped out of their homeland. They were taken out of of their Jewish context and thrown by force as slaves into the wicked world of the Babylonians who were definitely not Jewish, who were far from righteous and had no compassion or pity on anyone who didn't want to do things their way. That's why they could throw people in a lion's den. They didn't care about you. If you weren't doing what they were doing, they would let you get eaten alive by, by lions or wild animals. That's a true part of history. They also didn't mind about burning you alive. If you didn't do what they were doing, they would set you on fire, burn you alive. That is the kind of wickedness that was in their heart. Now, I want you to understand that context as we begin to read at the end of this chronicle from the second chronicles. Look at it. Here it is. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and what? Again. Somebody say again. Again, say again. Again, I'm going to read that again. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity 
on his people and on his dwelling place. So the pity of God that he had on them at this time was sending messengers to them again and what? Again, help me preach. Again and again. I'm just hooked on that because I want you to get it. How many people have come through American history and preached to us Americans the gospel again and again? How many times have our people heard the message of Jesus dying on the cross, being buried, rising again, ascending to heaven, promising to come back? How many times has it been preached to us again and and again, from Billy Graham to William J. Seymour to Oral Roberts to the people like Franklin Graham, the second and third generation, it has been preached to us again and again. Is America without excuse today? Or does America have an excuse rather? No. Are we today hearing the messages? Most of us are not. And most, when they hear the message of the gospel being preached to them, they do not see it as pity. They don't. They don't see it as God being merciful. They see us as being judgmental. So when they meet us on the corner there of LaSalle, and what is that, LaSalle, and what's the street we go to the abortion clinic on? Division, thank you. They're on LaSalle and Division. Do they think to us, thank you, or say to us, thank you for having pity on us. Thank you for coming to us and telling us about how we shouldn't murder our children. Is that what they say to us? Thank you for having pity on us. No, they get angry with us. They curse us out. They get so angry with us that they want to steal from us the right to even have free speech. If we were down there protesting of meat and it's something from the vegan standpoint, even if they disagreed with us and they were meat eaters, they would have no problem with us. They would say, hey, we appreciate what you're doing. You may disagree. If we were out there protesting any other kind of injustice, we could pick some country of the world and say there's some injustice over here. We could be talking about the Tibetans being, you know, being treated unfairly by China and out there protesting. And how many know? they would at least, even if they didn't agree or know about the cause, they would at least be thankful. They would say, we're glad you're here. Oh, good job. But because we stand on the word of God and because we preach what Jesus preached, as he said, a prophecy being fulfilled every time they do it. They don't know it, but they're actually fulfilling a prophecy. They are hating us because they hate him. And they don't see what we're saying as pity, do they? They actually think we're pitiful. They'll say things to us while we're preaching there on the solemn division against abortion. They'll say things like this. I'm now donating to Planned Parenthood on behalf of you guys. We're now going to give to Planned Parenthood because you're out here. How many of you, I see some heads nodding, have heard them say that to us? And I say back to them, you would make a good Nazi. Because that's exactly what Hitler's Germany wanted, was more people to donate to the cause and I know sometimes the Nazi illustration is abused, but I think when it comes to abortion, I think even Hitler couldn't have dreamed up of such a holocaust as that. He only got to about 10, 15 million. We're passing, like I said, 50, 60 million in America. When it comes to holocaust, America's outdid Hitler. And yet they'll say to us, without blushing, in their anger, I'm now going to donate to this abortion cause because you're out here. That's how angry they are. They don't see it as pity, but everybody get this. In God's heart, when God sees what's going on, it's God's compassion. You're part of God's pity 
to this world. God feels compassion for them. And so he sends you, and he sends you, and he sends me, and he sends my family to go warn them, to go tell them what God is going to do to those who murder their own children. Now let's keep going. Verse 16. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. In other words, until there was no more pity. God gave pity until there was none left. God gave them his messengers until he said, I'm done with you. You have mocked them. You have ridiculed them. You have despised what they have said. You have scoffed them. Now God says, I will judge you, and there will be no remedy. I wonder how far we are as a nation from the place where God says the pity is over. The remedy now has been done away with. There is no more cure for your disease. You will now suffer the wrath. I believe we are but a breath from that place. That is why I am pleading with the people for them to get right with God. Therefore, Paul speaking, therefore knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade people to get right with God, to reconcile with God. Is there anybody else in here today that wants to be a co-laborer and persuade people to come to God before the wrath comes, before the pity ends? And so often, even while we say that, they mock us. Oh, you preachers, you've been talking about this judgment for a long time. Where is it? And yet every nation that has experienced the wrath of God no longer argues with it. Ask the Roman Empire, where is the wrath of God? Oops, you can't. Ask the pharaohs of Egypt, where is the wrath of God? Oops, you can't because they're... Gone because of the wrath of God. Ask even the Babylonians. Did it come eventually upon them? Absolutely, even upon the Jews. As a matter of fact, when you talk to the Jewish people who may not yet believe in the Messiah, there is one thing ingrained into their culture, and that is we have suffered the wrath of God. Ask a Jewish person, have they as a people suffered the wrath of God? Their book is filled not only with stories of watching others suffer the wrath of God, but they themselves. God has given his wrath to people before. And yet now our nation, such a young teenage nation compared to other nations, only a few hundred years old, is now sticking up its thumbs to God. Nah, 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 nah. Where's your wrath? We've heard this for a while. Where's your wrath, God? And how many know nations that had been along a lot longer tried that before, and now they're gone? Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Rome, Greece, These world empires brought down to their knees to but dust, and now we go to their countries and look at the artifacts of their world empires. 
I wonder how long it will be before America becomes an artifact, before another nation takes us over or the judgment of God comes and we go to museums to learn about the presidents of our country, like how we learn about the pharaohs, or we take pictures of the stadiums and we look at the stadiums because now they're nothing but ruins like the Colosseums of Rome. All of these nations thought that they could stand against God. They thought that they could go their own way, rebel against the things of God, and still exist as a people. And that is not true. All nations that turn against God will be turned to hell. Juan, look that up in the King James for me, please. I want to give them the good King James. Nations that turn against God, it literally says in the King James, will be turned into hell. Any nation that comes against the God of the Bible will be turned to hell. There is destruction coming to America. And because of God's pity on us, he is giving our nation preachers and messengers and prophets to warn, to give a call of repentance. And are we here as a part of that, I believe we are. How many believe you're a part of the messenger sent to this nation as the pity of God to stay the hand of the wrath of God? How many believe that? How many believe you're a part of the answer today? I believe that you and I are the reason for why wrath hasn't come. Now go to A. Do me a favor, brother. Don't do it like that, please. Go to A. I'm going to help you look it up. Thank you. My wife got it as well. Go all the way to the top. Scroll over right there. Nope, go down. I'm going to help you right here. There you go. Put on that one. Thank you. Now put it there. That scripture my wife gave you. What is it? Shout it out, Carl. Uh, Oscar. Say it loud for us. Psalm 19, verse what? Verse 9. Okay, I don't know. I can't hear him. Uh, can you say it one more time for me, brother? Chapter 9, verse 17 of Psalm. Thank you. Now go to the King James right up here. Nice little crown right there for the king there. There you go, old King James. Look at what it says. The wicked shall be turned into what? Come on, say it like you mean it. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. You and I are here to say that message to this nation. Imagine being in the Roman Empire as a Christian before it falls. Imagine being the Jews of that day before the Greek Empire fell. Imagine being the Jews before the Assyrian Empire fell. Imagine being a Jew, going back to our context here, before Jerusalem fell. How would you say it to the people? What words would you use? Would you use colorful, soft, ear-tickling language? Or would you use the most dramatic, hard-hitting, clear speech possible? I mean, just imagine you're around at that time in the history books. So you know it's going to happen. It's already prophesied it's going to happen. How are you going to speak to those people? Now, come into the present, and trust me when I say, as sure as it has already happened, it is going to happen. I know today may not be a shouting message, but I need some agreement from the house of God. Can you say amen if you believe this? Amen. We need to shout it aloud for the nation to hear. This nation is on the verge of destruction. Now go back to the passage, please, in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. 
These people had been given the warnings of God by the pity of God over and over and over again, yet they mocked, despised the prophets. And now God said that he was going to bring his wrath and there would be no more remedy. Look at verse 17. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary. Somebody say, no mercy. Killed them even in church. And did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirmed. When the king of Babylon came, it didn't matter if you were old. Didn't matter if you were young. Didn't matter if you were sick. Or if you were healthy, it didn't matter if you ran inside the church, he was going to kill you. God, this is where it gets scary. Are you listening to me? Everybody get this. Hey, if you're listening, say amen. Amen. Because it says God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Who did it? Does it say the devil did it? No, it said God did it. The moment we started taking on the same argument of Oprah Winfrey is when we lost the culture battle in our nation. The argument of Oprah Winfrey is simple. How can a good God be jealous of our love and affection and then get upset with us and punish us, punish us because he didn't like what we did? How can God be so petty? If Oprah was to interpret this, she would say that God is a big meanie. Sure, we all make mistakes, but get over it, God. Why would you allow the children to be killed even for what their parents did? That's so unfair. That can't be a real God. That's a petty God. You see people in the neighborhood. I'm going to beat you up, your mama up, your kids up. We think of those people being petty. She puts God on that same level. God is petty. Messing with everybody's families now for a few bad apples. And if he was God, he would be all loving and he would figure out a way in his power because he's all powerful to fix the problem without being judgmental, without being judgy, judgy. That's how Oprah would interpret it. And the moment that housewives and others like that began to hear that message and begin to think, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, why would a good God do something like that? that? That's kind of embarrassing. I go to church and I invite my friends and, you know, now that I read a passage like that, that's kind of embarrassing. Our God, the powerful, loving God, gives children to Babylonians to be killed? This has to be a book written by men. This has to just be inspired by men. This has to be made up stories to try to make people fear their God so they'll serve him. That's what they say. And that's how this generation lost the culture of battle. Because what, what they did and what Oprah did is she made a God in her own image. She made a God that was just like her. She looked in the mirror and said, hello, God. She made a God that looked like her. And it's not just her. I use her as an example because she's one of the spokespeople of this false religion of Nicianity. It's not Christianity. It's Nicianity. And the idea that God would allow such a thing just itself is an argument against this God. And yet I ask her and anyone thinking like that, have you ever read the book from the beginning? Because it's our book and you've 
understood this part of it, and it seems like you're upset about it, but have you read it from the beginning? And when we go to the beginning, we begin to understand that God made us in his image, good, to be holy, to do the right thing, but yet he gave us free will to make our choice. Now, I want everybody to understand this. It was God's choice to give us a choice. He is responsible for that. God is responsible for that. Free will did not come from the devil. In God's sovereign choice and his powerful choice, he chose to give you a choice. And then what comes directly after that and the consequences that follow. Now at this point, what is your argument towards that God? Because if he is the God of the universe that has the power to speak a universe into existence and to order it intelligently, which now is even being acknowledged by scientists to how intelligent our universe is, if you acknowledge this God making a universe, is this God not free to choose what we get as consequences? Yes or no? Can God give us consequences? Is it his choice to what they be? Now, this is where I would agree with them. If our God did not give us the consequence before we make the bad choice, that would seem a bit unfair, wouldn't it? They make a bad choice, whoops, you're going to die now. Make a bad choice, whoops, you're going to get taken into slavery now. Bet you didn't know that. How many know that would be unjust? Maybe an argument could be formed there. But how many know in the beginning of our book, he said, from the, he said, do not eat of this tree, for the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Whoa, you mean God has been pitying us, pitying us from moment one by giving us a message to not violate his commands? Now, sometimes people say, well, there was no way Adam and Eve could understand the weight of their decision. I don't care what you think they understood. God said they did understand. Because sometimes they'll try to say, well, imagine me saying to a child, don't eat the cookie because if you do, I'm going to light you on fire in the backyard. That is not the illustration we get from Adam and Eve. Adam can name all the animals in their species in one day. And when you look at the understanding of how many species of animals, there's about 10,000 major kinds of animals. He named 10,000 things at the beginning. They were clothed in glory. As the way I like to put it, when you start a video game, when I play Call of Duty or I play Halo, do I start as a baby and then wait 30 years for a warrior or do I start with a warrior? I start with the warrior. Adam started as a warrior. He understood things that would have taken lifetimes to understand. That's how God started him. He understood language, didn't he? Jesus didn't start talking to him and go, baby, goo goo caca, tree, tree. No, no, start talking to him. Adam and Eve, like a tree, was planted already with fruit by God in a universe sustainable. Adam was created with understanding and a mind at moment one. He didn't have to start doing baby goo goo gaga with him. He understood language. He understood what animals and different kinds were. He didn't just keep calling everything giraffe, 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 giraffe. He understood you're a different animal. You're like an elephant. You're like a giraffe. He understood kinds. He made, he made dis differentiations. He had intelligence. He could communicate. And he understood what it meant when you eat, you die. 
because he understood the God who had created him, given him that mentality, had told him, don't do these things. How about going back to this scenario right here? Do you think they understood the language of warning that was coming to them? Absolutely they understood it. They understood it to the point where they called Jeremiah, one of the final prophets, a false prophet and threw him into a pit. And then when Babylon heard about it, they go, this guy's actually telling you the truth. We're about ready to kick your butt. And when they came, they actually had compassion on Jeremiah and exiled him instead of taking him as a slave. Think about that for a second. Babylon takes you over and says to the guy that says you were going to get taken over the whole time, you were right about that. We're just going to let you go. They didn't listen to you. They understood exactly what those prophets were saying. They understood it clearly. And we believe there is a special grace for those without an understanding. That's why we understand children and the handicapped to be in a different category because of their conscience and how the physical brain interacts with the conscience. We know there's a difference. So let God sort out the, the subset of people, the minority of people who will have to be de- judged with on their own standard of how they understood life, either as a child, an unborn infant, a handicapped person. But how many know 99.99% of y'all understand what that Bible is saying? How many know that 99.99% of every person walking by us when we're preaching on LaSalle and Division understand exactly what we're saying? What about repent? Don't you understand? What about sin? Don't you understand? What about God's judgment? Don't you understand? No, they understand it quite well. They understand it enough to get in our face, cuss us out, spit at us, holler at us, threaten us. They do understand it, don't they? That's why in every generation there's always a a group of people that try to rid the culture of the Bible. In our generation, it's no different. But how many know this Bible will outlast every culture and every attack and every generation against it? It is still going to serve as a warning. It is still going to serve as a pity to the people of a culture. Notice that God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the kings and his officials. Within one moment, all that Solomon had built, all that had been blessed, uh, given to them by, by God as blessings was taken. God even allowed his own temple to be sacked and pillaged and destroyed. Why? Because God's wrath now has no remedy. Destruction must come. They set fire to God's temple, broke down the walls of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant. This is now Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who escaped from the sword. So whoever wasn't able to fight, so when we think about Daniel, Daniel might have been like my son Lucas's age. Lucas, would you wave your hand, please? He might have been about Lucas's age. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, do you guys see that now? Because the men of war go out to fight, they're all getting slaughtered. Old and young, it doesn't matter. But those who hid, they might have gotten spared, especially if they were like children. And they were brought in. Look at what it says. And they became servants to him, slaves, and his successors, until the kingdom of Persia came to power. 
And the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by who? Jeremiah. Go with me now to John chapter 10, verse 10. How many want to be a warning to this generation? We need to warn the people about what's coming. Now, for our eschatology or how we see the end times, we believe, the, we believe God is going to hand over the nations to the Antichrist. And we believe that the Antichrist will subject every nation to its power, and there will be millions killed when he comes into power because even the good old American boys who didn't catch the rapture will try to fight him, and they're all going to get put down quickly. And the nations will belong to the Antichrist until Jesus Christ destroys the Antichrist nation. And so what we're looking at now at the timeline, what we're warning people of is the Antichrist coming, destroying, and ruling over the nations and the judgment of God at the battle of Armageddon. But we also need to tell them that while we're waiting for these cataclysmic events, these huge events of history, that right now there is an enemy that will have no pity on them and that if they're not under the protection of God, the wrath of God will be against them and handed over to this enemy. Somebody say the devil. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the what? Have it to the, the full. Somebody say to the full. Right now, there's an enemy that's coming to attack every one of us. And if you are not listening to the word of God, hear me parents, hear me mothers and fathers here. If you are not listening to the word of God, having pity on your children, teaching them the things of God, you will be handed over to Satan, handed over to the devil. What will it look like? It will look like you being held captive by the devil as the people of Israel will held captive by Nebuchadnezzar and made his slaves. That's what it will look like. It will look like captivity. And so right now, what do I see? I see families being held captive to the ideologies of perversion, to the ideologies of sin and adultery, to the ideologies of pornography and perversion of how they live. And they don't know. They're already on, they've already been stolen from. Their purpose has already been killed. And they're headed now for the path of destruction. But they say, oh, I don't see it. It's not like it was in the days of Babylon. No, but we can see it who have our eyes open. When I see a family turn their back on God because now they have a member that identifies as LGBTQ or whatever, they now have become captive to the devil. He is stealing and killing their purpose, and his ultimate goal is to destroy them and cast them into the lake of fire with himself. But right now, they don't want to believe it. Right now, they want to look at us like we're the ones that are suffering for what we're doing because we're not loved by the world. They take our rejection, the rejection the world gives us, as a sign that we're failing at life. Oh, look at you Christians. You guys fail at life. Look at how nobody likes you guys. Look at how everybody in the family doesn't like you anymore. Look at how now you can't have that job. Or look at so-and-so. They, they got doxxed or they got, you know, called out and they can't be that, you know, whatever they were anymore. Well, you guys are failing at life. But what's really happening is they're being held captive by the devil. And the devil wants to destroy them. And yet we are watching it happen and we're not warning them. We're not warning them. We're thinking because, oh, these are nice people and that, you know, the, the enemy hasn't slaughtered them in blood in the streets. We don't think that they've been defeated by an enemy. But they have been. 
Their mind has already been held captive. Their soul has already been lost. And so when you look at how Adam and Eve fell in the beginning, did they die in the sense of fall over dead? No, the Bible says Adam and Eve kept living. So couldn't you at that point make an argument and go, God, I thought you said they were going to die. Satan said, surely they won't die. It looks like Satan's right. They're not dead. But what would you say back? The most important thing, their spirit has died. That's why the moment Adam ate from that with Eve and they saw that they were naked, they ran and hid because they knew the relationship was dead. Remember when the prodigal son was away from the the family eating the food of pigs? He came to his right mind and he came back. Remember what the father said about his son? My son who was once dead is now alive. Do you know that you can be dead while you still live? Do you know that you can have things stolen from you while you still have a lot of stuff around you? Do you know that you can be on the path to destruction while winning all kinds of awards and accolades and being told you're the greatest thing? Spiritually, it's what's going on in our world today. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5, please. Vinny, would you come? I want to end this in a a way of hope, but I want to give you the reality of what I see happening here. I want to read this context because we're going to get to that famous scripture. How many have heard that the devil's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour? But have you ever really took your time to see it in the context? It's in the context of you submitting to your elders being humble. Wow. Did you all just get that? The the number one scripture we see in the New Testament about the devil being a lion and coming to devour us is in the context of us being in church, having a humble heart, being teachable. Why? Because we're supposed to be hearing and doing the things of God in community, not turning away from these things. That's why the Bible says when it comes to church, as we see these last days approaching and we see this time coming, do not forsake the gathering together. Do not forsake the gathering together as you see judgment approaching because here is the safety. I'm supposed to look out for you and to help ensure that you don't get destroyed. I am a pity sent from God to you. You are to me because we are pity to each other, helping each other, God's compassion to each other. But if we reject it, there is no more pity. If we reject what God is saying to the church and saying through his scriptures, we will be destroyed. I'm going to read it quickly, not to dishonor it, but just so you could see the whole context because I wish I could take my time on this passage. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, Peter talking here, and a witness of Christ's suffering, who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, somebody say in the same way, Thank you. You who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now are you ready for it? Here it is. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy 
The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, lion looking for someone to devour. Do you see the context there now? We'll get to the resisting because I want to end with encouragement today. But I just wanted to wake us up to this message that we are a pity to this generation. Do not be discouraged by their scoffs. They don't know what they're scoffing at. Do not be discouraged by their rejection of you. You are God's mercy to them. You are God's pity to them. You are God's hand of compassion to them, wanting to give them a hand up. And yet the world scoffs and ridicules. And why are they doing that? Because our battle's not against flesh and blood. They don't understand the big picture, do they? The big picture is, should the Lord tarry, America will be destroyed at some point. It has gone down that road. It has had a unique relationship with the Christian people. And because of its offense towards the Christian people, it has now brought upon itself judgment. And should the Lord tarry, we would watch America suffer judgment. Just like should the Lord tarry, we will watch China and these other nations suffer judgment. The Bible promises they will be turned to hell. They will be destroyed. But I believe the Antichrist will come first. And so they will see the oppression of his wickedness. And then God will judge the land. That's how close I believe we are. I don't think we're going to have as much time as they had from the Roman Empire to us today. I mean, that's been, you know, over 1,500 years. I don't think we have that much time. But here's what I do know. I do know that in this present moment, that as the enemies of God invaded their land and had no compassion on them and destroyed their actual country, that that is what the devil is wanting to do to us right now. I believe it. He has no compassion. He has no pity. And the sad part is, is that we put ourselves into his hands when we come out of the things of God. Because notice this, your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. Is he an enemy that can just come and devour you right off the bat? No, he's looking for someone to devour. Why does he have to look? Because God can protect. And the illustration we're supposed to get there is, is when a lion comes to a herd of animals, it looks for the one that it can devour, the sickly one, the one that's all by itself, or the one that's sleeping, that's not alert. And so we're supposed to have in our minds the devil's looking to devour us, to take advantage of us. And if he can do it through our worldview, he'll do it. If he can do it through our sexual desires and temptations, he'll do it. If he can do it through our greed and our pleasures, he'll do it. He will find what he can to devour. But what are we supposed to do? Resist him standing firm in the faith. How many here today want to resist the devil to cast him out in Jesus' name and to stand on the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. I appreciate those of you who tagged me in the post of the Polish brother in Canada who stood up against the closing down of his church. 
But understand this today. Our job is not to gather all of us together and just sing Kumbaya. Though I think it's awesome. Trust me, I want to be his friend. But my priority is not to go look for everyone suffering today and say, let's just be friends and all hang out together. Our priority is to encourage one another, to pray for one another, and then to go back to our lands, go back to our families, go back to our places and say, I'm going to stand up for Jesus here as my brother stands over there, as my sister stands over there. But I'm glad to know I'm not alone. How many know we're not alone today? But how many know it's not going to stop the world from hating us? And we're not supposed to retreat. I do want to be friends with everybody that's suffering for Jesus. I've made so many good friendships out of this uh, season. But my number one priority is to keep standing where I'm supposed to be standing. And you need to do the same. Don't get discouraged and leave your post in your family. If God's placed you in a family and there's not a lot of believers there, don't lose your post. Keep standing. Some of you have already been rejected. Don't stop praying for them. Keep warning them when you can. Others of you here, you're like me. You're a person that grew up in a Christian family, and so you're appreciative of that, but you've been rejected by others in your life and even by supposed Christians. Do not be discouraged. Keep standing for Jesus. Because the devil, what he wants us to do is to become that easy target. By the time the Babylonians came, the military of Israel, the Jerusalem army, was not even ready. They thought to themselves, there is no way it can come into, the enemies can come into Jerusalem. We've got the temple here. We've got God's presence here. There is no way that it can happen. They weren't even ready for a fight. There wasn't a fight. Are you listening to me today? There wasn't even a fight over the captivity. It might have been in self-defense as they were coming, but it wasn't like wars and all these wars Israel had been into. No, they were sieged to the point where they ate their own children. The wicked did. They ate their own children. They were starving. And by the time they came down the walls, there was hardly anybody that they had to fight, and there was just a slaughter. And when they ran to the church because they thought, well, in the sanctuary I'll be safe, they were slaughtered there. And I want to tell you today, the devil wants to get us tired. He wants to siege us, discourage us, cut us off from people, make us feel like we're alone so he can just come in and just mop us up just like nothing. Just take us over. And I see this happen over and over and over again. Christians that I knew that used to be mighty warriors, they give up their prayer life for their entertainment life. They give up their church life for their overtime at the job. They give up holiness preaching to being accepted by the culture. And then the next time you talk to them, oh, I think everybody's religion is the same. Just get blown down like a house of cards. Nothing left. Nothing left. No fight left in them. They're like that sickly little uh, antelope on the plains of Africa that just gets taken over and eaten alive by the lion. And some of you need to watch that to get an idea of what a lion will do to get it back into because they lived in a time where they saw that kind of stuff. You ever seen a lion eat its kill? thing will still be alive, and it's just munching on its hindquarters, heads up and looking around. I wonder why my body's hurting right now. You're eating me. Sometimes they don't even go for it because they like it fresh. Just keep devouring on it, eating its leg, eating its hindquarters, things still up, looking around, chilling. I mean, it messes with you, and you see the animal kingdom. It's not Bambi. It's not pretty. And the devil just comes, no mercy. Destroy your family. Destroy your mindset. Destroy your marriage. And yet the God 
God of the Bible says we can resist him. We can war against him. We can see him defeated. When he roars, we can roar back. When he comes with his accusations and his fear, we can speak the word of God and say, get behind me, Satan. Woo! We have the sword of the Spirit, which is a double-edged sword tearing down principalities and strongholds, standing in the army of God, the armor of God as an army. And so today it's your choice. Do you stand with the army of God as a pity to this nation, as a defense to the attacks of the enemy, or do you get destroyed? This message I was going to preach in Dallas this week, but some things happened. I wasn't able to make the trip, but I feel the Lord and His anointing here that it's a message for us and not to give up, to keep on swinging that sword. There's a story about David's mighty men in the Bible where this one dude had to take on hundreds of people and after the battle, he couldn't even let go of the sword. And this is a real physical ailment. It's talked about in different times that your hands and your grip will get so attached to something that somebody else has to peel it off of your hands. You've heard that before, peeled off my cold dead hands. But this was a man that had fought so long that they had to peel the sword off his hands. May that be said of us. We're swinging that sword, taking out all the enemies. And I know some of you, you might be a little bit timid and afraid today because I even feel it, and I just want to identify this with you. You might feel like me. You say, man, pastor, how am I going to make it? I've even seen pastors fall. Listen, when I was being raised up in the faith, there was two men of God that I hung out with in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Both of them ended up getting out of the ministry. One cheated on his wife, and the other one had a divorce because he went into depression. Could you imagine that? I'm new. I'm new to this. And the pastor I'm looking up to, I kept seeing him with this woman, the secretary. I was new to this, you understand. I didn't think much of it. But the man was having an affair with the woman I was having lunch with. Oh, yeah, meet us for lunch, Joe. Meet us for lunch. So they just thinking, here's a 19-year-old kid. Smells like weed. Smells like smoke. We don't care about him. I'm telling you, I would go out to lunch. The dude and the secretary are there. I didn't know any different. Okay, cool. What's up, man? Tell me about Jesus came out, oh man, he, he's cheating on his wife. Another dude, the pastor that my parents' church went to when I got saved, my parents, were, uh, they led me to the Lord, I think it was like on a Thursday, and then, and then when they left, uh, excuse me, when, when they got saved, it was like a week, and they had to go out of town. I was left by myself as a new Christian. I was scared. I'm like, man, I don't want to go back to the world. So they said, hey, man, call up our pastor. And this was a good dude. So I called him up, and he said, hey, come on over to my house. You can spend the night at my house. I spent the night at this pastor's house, and he just made me feel like I could make it through the first couple of days, especially the first weekend, <laughs> being saved. Has anybody had to go through something like that? Like, Lord, I'm saved, but I want to stay saved. Help me get through this weekend, Jesus. That pastor went into depression. I'm not saying there's something wrong with you if you go to the you know go through depression it happens, but man had it so bad he had to quit the ministry. So imagine this: I'm in Bible college, first year of Bible college. Hey Joe, did you hear about Pastor So and So? He's cheating on his wife, had a divorce, married the secretary. Hey Joe, have you heard about the other pastor, the church that your your family went to? Man went into deep dark depression, suicidal thoughts, divorced his wife, became a recluse, quit the ministry. That's in the first year. And I want to talk to some of you. I know you feel that. And I feel it at times too. But the Bible says, though a thousand fall at your one side, and though 10,000 fall at your other, the destruction will not come near you. 
you keep on fighting. I made a decision when I was in the Bible college. I said, I don't care if pastors backslide. I'm going to heaven with Jesus. I don't care if this one gets depressed. I know there's a joy down deep in my soul, full of glory. I will rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, I will rejoice. You may go through some hard times. You may see the strongest people in your life quit on Jesus. You may see a whole culture go to hell in a handbasket. But I know if God made an ark for eight in Noah's family, I know God's got an ark for me. He will protect me and my family. We go into heaven with Jesus. It doesn't matter if this whole culture goes to hell. I'm going to heaven with Jesus. Even if this whole place turns into Sodom and Gomorrah, he'll send two angels to your house and get you out the house if he has to. Because God cares about his people. He's not going to let us go down with a sinking ship. He will protect us. Will you stand up and give it up for Jesus today? We love you, Lord. Come on, somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Somebody say, I resist the devil. Amen. Band and altar workers, would you come, please? It's time for us to defeat what's defeating them. It's time for us, in the name of Jesus, come on, Joaquin, it's time for us to conquer what's conquering them. I've sat around so many so-called Christians, and you know what they say to me, Humberto? Oh, I used to be like you. Oh, but man, Christianity changes over time. You know, you're going to run into stuff that you're not as strong as you think you are, all this and that. And you know what I've told them? I said, I'm sorry that that defeated you. But I want you to understand what defeated you, I'll defeat in Jesus' name. Just because you stumbled and fell here doesn't mean I'm going to stumble and fall here. Just because you quit on your marriage after 15 years doesn't mean I'm quitting on my marriage. I'm going all the way to death, do us part. Are you listening? And just because that other church backslid when they ended up having 500 and 1,000, that doesn't mean when we reach 1,000, Berta, we're going to backslide. Let God be true and every person a liar. Come on, brother. Come on, Daniel. We got to get it in our hearts today that we're going to resist that we're going to stand whatever is coming against us. We're going to stand against it in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we thank you today that you've given us the power to stand. Even though there'll come a time when there's no pity, we pray that we can be a pity. We can be a compassion to these people. And we pray that we'll lead by example. Come on, every head bowed and eyes closed. If you have not been leading by example, let us pray for you today. If you need Christ in your life, if you haven't accepted him, call him to be your Lord today. Say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life, and then let us pray for you. But for the rest who are already saved, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you want to be a light in the darkness? Do you want to be a city on a hill? Do you want to be salt to this world? Then ask the Lord to use you to a people that may scoff you, that may ridicule you, that may mock you, Ask God to make you a pity and a compassion to them. Lord, use me wherever I go. Oh God, because I do not want to see these people judged and handed over to what's coming ahead. We know it's coming, but we pray for compassion on those. Right now, right now that we speak with, that we pray with, we pray for compassion. We pray for mercy mercy on this land. Raise us up to be soldiers for you, O God. 
A few of you can relate to what I was talking about, that fear of failure. Ask God to remove that from you. Say, Lord, give me boldness to stand and face the enemy. Even when he roars and says, I'm going to get destroyed, he tells me, I'm going to take you down. He's going to mess with me. Help us to believe. Your report is true. A few moments right now, we'll dismiss after this time of prayer, but let's get right with God. Let's ask God to use us, guard us. Right now, Holy Spirit, I submit, I surrender and I submit. Surrender and submit with me today, saints. I surrender and I submit, Holy Spirit, to the mighty hand of God. Lift me up. Let me not be destroyed with the wicked. A few moments, a few moments. Lord, I pray for Oprah. I pray for anyone who has believed a gospel that thinks it's wrong for you to judge. Oh, God, that they would see judgment is coming and that their accusations towards you will not hold up. Imagine saying that to a judge. Well, I don't think you should be a judge. I don't like judges. You think that's going to change a judgment for a criminal that's broken the law? We are lawbreakers before our God. Whether you like it or not, we are lawbreakers. And he is a judge whether you like it or not. Judgment is coming. God, help wake us up to those we need to warn, to those we need to speak to. A few moments right now, many of you know that we'll reason with them. So I'm not just talking about a, you know, one and done, just get up real quick and rebuke them. I'm saying build relationships with them. Show them. Reason with them. Paul reasoned with the Greek philosophers. He reasoned with them and helped them to see there is a God of judgment. A few more moments. Some of you read about Mars Hill. It was when he mentioned judgment that the Greek philosophers freaked out. They're like, oh, man, what? Somebody rose from the dead who's going to judge us? What are you talking about? But he didn't give up on those folks. We have to explain it to them. There is a judgment. It's righteous. We are lawbreakers. But God is holy. I pray for my friends to see it. I pray for my neighbors to see it. I pray for those who are in different religions to see it. There's nowhere to hide when judgment comes. But right now, God, they can be forgiven and set free. And a few more moments right now before we go, think about the devil who's doing it already spiritually. Just apply that spiritually. You see people right now, they're already broken. They're already addicted. They're already on their second or third marriage. Or they've lost their identity. Pray for them that they'll see who God made them to be. Because they could be captive right now. Right now, many are captive, are they not? Lord, set them free. I pray for everyone here. If you're captive to any sin, to be free from that sin right now. Jesus came to set us free. You don't have to leave out of here in sin. God can break the power of sin. God can break the power that has had its hold over you. We're just going to close and worship and then dismiss because I sense the Lord here. Can we just tarry in his presence? How